we had no credibility at all. Every night from 12 to 3 a.m., we will be calling out distributors in a different time zone to US, Europe, trying to hustle for them to share a film with us to see if we can include it. We spent a few months doing this and they'll be like, who are you guys? What are you guys doing? This, this sounds like a stupid idea. You know what? A film festival and design or art. But we managed to put together a lineup and the first day was depressing. We had 30 people show up. Have you ever been told you should get a more sensible career? On this show, we speak with creators and artists in Asia who ignored that advice to find success in their creative field. We'll learn how they paved their own path, dealt with roadblocks and challenges, and gained hard-earned lessons on their way to building a unique and singular foolish career. I'm your host, Timmy Sitanko. Let's yep. start with you accidentally building the studio business. Yeah. So you got kicked out of school because you were always late because you were working in a record yeah. store to yeah. pay for school, ironically. Yeah. And actually, your school gave you a second chance. Yeah. Why do you think they gave you a second chance? Between 2 to 11 p.m. every day, I'm working at a music store. So by the time I get home, it's midnight. And the next day, class starts at 7 so that's quite impossible and I was living in the east my school was in the west about a week after the the dean of the the school called me back in and he said that although your attendance is always really bad a few of the teachers came in to fight for, on your behalf they said that you know the work you're trying to fulfill all the assignments but you're just bad in attendance at the time the school was they were having this collaboration with TV stations on having some of the student films or content to be shown in outdoor spaces like buses, taxis, billboard screens. So he asked, quit your job, the school will give you work to do and then we'll pay you some money so you can pay your school fees and expenses. But I had no idea how to do it. I was not a designer at that point. So I went to bookstores, I went to the library. This was way before you had tutorials on YouTube. If you wanted to find out about something, you actually went to a library, you read it, you photocopied it. It makes me sound incredibly old. So that was how I got into design, although I wanted to be a writer. And did you find that you had some kind of skill for it, as it turns out? I don't know if I had skill for it, but I think back then I was just happy to be able to not be kicked out of school and having this thing to do. I don't think I was passionate about it at the beginning, but... Over time, I think I, I started to realize that, hey, this is quite an interesting challenge. And so you and Jermaine set up the studio in 2005. And fast forward yep. six years later, you received a Young Gun Award. And yep. it was very hard for me to find information on what those first <laughs> six years were like. Scott yeah. Belsky calls it the messy middle. What kind of work did you do? And right. what were those early days like? In a way, I can describe our studio since we started in 2005 in 2X. So the first act is between 2005 to 2010. Those were what you probably feel like the lost years. In the first two years, I was actually serving national service. I was in the Air Force. So we were running the studio in the evenings and at night. We were a very pure graphic design studio. Right? We were doing packaging, identity design, logos, motion graphics. So that's the first act, trying to be this design studio. We were not called anonymous back then. We were called silent. S With a missing E, right? Yes, exactly. And then in 2009, we worked on the branding for a restaurant. And 
Throughout the entire process of designing the identity, the hoarding, the website, we never had a chance to taste the food. And so as I was working on a project, I felt a bit strange. I felt like we were just designing the candy wrapper. I didn't really know what we were selling, whether it was good, whether everything lived up to its promise. That project really changed my perception of the kind of work that we want to do. So this was actually one example. The second example is actually really funny. There was this guy, he wanted us to design a brand identity for him. And then during one of the kickoff meetings, I asked him, uh, so what's the business going to be about? He said, oh, we are a guerrilla marketing company. I said, okay, so what kind of services are you going to do? He said, oh, we'll do everything, ATL, BTL. So I said, but that's not guerrilla marketing. And then his reply was, don't tell me how to run my business. You just stick to designing the logo. And so that, that kind of changed my attitude towards being a designer. I just felt very limited by the idea that we are doing this one small part, which is what everyone is going to see. And it felt like we were constantly trying to create this persona for something that doesn't exist. So in about late 2009, we started Anonymous to channel all our frustrations into doing, okay, our own projects. Anonymous was started purely as this other company for us to do our own things. We were frustrated with having to work on projects whereby we were designing how something is presented to the world, but we don't really know what this product is. What was your first project under Anonymous? Design Film Festival. I think it's probably what we are most known for because really back then, 11 years ago, there was nothing like that. There was no mm. film festivals on design. And then I went to search for the URL and I realized, yeah, Design Film Festival is available. Let's book it. So you made the decision based on a domain name <laughs> being available. <laughs> I think that's how we start most projects. <laughs> that keeps things simple. Yeah, absolutely. I think the name is perhaps one of the most critical things in starting a new project. Because if the name is not sticky, then it's, it's going to be difficult. Why a film fest? That seems to be a massive first project to start on. 10 to 11 years ago, the Singapore design landscape was very different. There were art festivals, there were exhibitions and things like that. But it felt more like this professional ghetto. Okay. Whenever you attend these events, it's the same people who are just practitioners. The majority of the audience were designers or artists themselves. Every time I went for an industry event or I spoke to my friends in the industry, they were always lamenting about the same thing. Clients don't understand the value of design. We're constantly pitching for work. People don't want to pay for the service. I realized the problem here is the level of design literacy is quite low. The public doesn't understand the power of design. Back then, Apple just released the first iPhone. So design was still quite obscure. So basically, a lot of this content was very intimidating to the public. So we realized that, hey, films are deceptively simple. Because when you watch a film, you feel like it's entertainment. But actually, you get to learn something from it. So we tested the concept with this film. It's called Art and Copy. It was about the advertising industry. We did it at, at, at a cinema. There was 100 seats for me. And then it was Full House. We figured, okay, can we build this out to a bigger lineup? Can we have five, seven, eight films? At that point, we had no credibility at all. Every night from 12 to 3 a.m., we will be calling out distributors in the different time zones, the U.S., Europe, trying to hustle for them to share a film with us to see if we can include it. We spent a few months doing this, and they'll be like, 
who are you guys? What are you guys doing? This, this sounds like a stupid idea, you know, what a film festival and design or art. But we managed to put together a lineup and the first day was depressing. We had 30 people show up and <laughs> so it was heartbreaking, right? So like, we were like, whoa, maybe this is not such a good idea. How big was the theater that you booked? Do you remember? Oh, 100. 100 oh my God. Okay. Yeah, so there were 30 people. I felt disappointed by the same time when we decided to do it, we didn't expect there to be such a big audience in the first place. So after the first day, things started to change. We started getting calls from newspapers. We started getting calls from magazines. People started calling up to, to ask for tickets. We ran it over 10 days. So every day got more and more packed. Mm. And then eventually, I think that first year, we had 1,800 people. So that was how Design Film Festival started. It started really as an accidental project. We wanted to see if this idea was even an idea. We didn't intend to do it more than the first year. It was always meant to be a one-off project. So what made you decide to do year two? Two things happened. The first thing was we actually found more films that were good. So that was obviously the optimistic answer I'm going to give you. After the first year, we, we started getting calls and people submitting films and we realized, hey, you know, there's something good. The not so optimistic answer, I think everyone who starts something will eventually face this. There were a few detractors. There were people who were saying, oh yeah, your first year was lucky. There was a group of industry veterans who formed the industry organization. And even they were saying, oh yeah, it's a stupid idea. I don't think it's going to work. So my motivation was also partly because I'm going to prove them wrong. I'm going to try to see if we can do it again. Detractors like that, I realized is fuel for me. Like, I am energized every time I have to prove someone wrong, I'm energized. Yeah. <laughs> Were they saying it out of love and concern? I've always tried to avoid having this interview. Okay. Simply because I think it can potentially be a bit controversial. Mm. And I always felt like no one was going to publish my answers. Let's rewind back to 10 years ago, right? Okay. So after we did it a second year, 2011, the venue that we were using... It was this creative compound called Old School. It was a fantastic place. We were able to do Design Film Festival because the co-founder, Mabel, she actually said, we have this old cinema. Why don't you guys use it? We won't charge you rent. You can use it. The only goal is make this place interesting for people. So that was really good of them. Then in 2012, the land where Old School was situated on was taken back by Singapore Land Authorities to be redeveloped into a condominium. There was petitions about people trying to fight and preserve this building, but yeah, it, it was gone. We sent out an email to our newsletter subscribers and we tell them that we were going to retire the film festival out of respect for old school. In a way, we were also like a bit rebellious against this whole idea that you're going to convert this land into a condominium. You're going to take away this really cool, interesting space that was supporting artists and designers and collectives. So we did it in Portland, Oregon. We did it in Taiwan that year, but we didn't do a Singapore edition. Towards the end of 2012, we started getting emails and calls from friends and people who came for the film festival before. They asked, oh, when is the next edition? Why don't you guys do it again? Then we explained that without a venue partner is prohibitively expensive. But I think at the same time, we were energized by the, the films that we could show in Portland and Taiwan and we felt, okay, let's try. Let's try to find a venue. 
let's try to find sponsors to come in. So we spent about six months trying to do it again in 2013. We went to all the cinemas in Singapore. Nobody wanted to sponsor the venue. We went to every single museum in Singapore. We went to all the galleries. The minute we went in for the meeting, it was just, bam, this is business for them. They all wanted to charge us like corporate rates because we were not a non-profit. We were a registered company. It was like $30,000 for two days or something like that. So we realized, okay, we're probably going to try and get some grant or sponsorship. So we went to the Singapore National Agency for Design. Okay. We went to them and we said, we started this film festival. The idea is that we want to help non-designers and designers understand the process through film. They said, ah, okay, but this is a film event. This is not a design event. You should talk to Media Development Authority. So we went to MDA and they said, Oh, this is an art event. This is not a film event. So we went to NAC and they said, this is a design event. This is not an arts event. To them, the design is business. Art is arts. It's about painting. It's about folk music. It's not about this intersection of different things. So that really broke my spirit at that point. That was really frustrating because we had a choice, right? Do we rent this venue for $30,000 and risk all our money and <laughs> just hope and pray that people will come or we just give up and just say, you know what, there's no sponsorship, there's no grants, there's, it's impossible to do it. So we decided to bite the bullet and we gambled. We gambled on it. We put in all the money that we have. We did it at School of the Arts. The rental, I think, was about thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 for two days. We even tried to do a Kickstarter kind of a way of funding the event. Mm -hmm. So we introduced this thing called Patron Pass whereby you could pledge $300, you get tickets, all access for every single screening, you get the best seats in the house, you get like a thank you dinner. Oh, I think our, our goal was to sell about 50 of this. Uh, I think we, in the end, we sold six. So oh, wow. that, <laughs> that also broke my spirit because I realized that this is quite challenging. It's really difficult to get support for the government. It's very difficult to get support from the venues, is difficult to expect the audience to come and fund your idea, right? It's very different, I think, in Singapore compared to the States, where in the States, this whole idea of tipping, this whole idea of putting where your, your money where your mouth is and supporting other people. This patronage kind of, idea. Oh, yeah. Things like Patreon, yeah. things mm. like Tip Jar, all these things are existent in American culture already, or Europe. In Singapore, it's really difficult. So that broke my spirit again, but then I said, let's continue going. <laughs> I think that year we sold 3,500 tickets. Okay. I think it was 3,500 or 4,000. Mm -hmm. So it was almost 90% full house. So that was the good thing. And you broke even on that gamble. We didn't lose that much money. <laughs> okay, good enough. The math doesn't make sense. Uh, at one point, I think we actually released our profit loss statement through our newsletter to explain this is the transparent cost of the event. I think in the end we lost a bit of money, but it was fine. At that time, I was 28, 29. Mm -hmm. So when you're 28, 29, you don't really think about money. You think yeah. about doing interesting things. And I, I think the next thing I'm going to say is going to answer one of the questions that we have, which is okay. at which point did we decide to scale? And mm. this was the point. The turning point was really between 2013 and 2014. We realized that the venue that we were using, SOTA, was great. But there were limitations to what we could do, how many screenings we could show per film. In 2013, every film we were only screen once. 
So after that, we realized we need to find a venue where we can scale differently. So certain films, we can have 200 seats. Certain films, we can have 500 seats. And then we could do multiple screenings. So we went to look for a venue that allows us to do it, right? And the answer was cinema. Cinemas have the capacity. They have five, six different halls. And then we, we also realized that the only way we could survive and not let this film festival become a project where we are constantly bleeding money is to scale. Because there's a certain fixed cost about doing anything. So for us, the fixed cost for running a film festival is really the cost of licensing the films, the cost of printing, mm -hmm. the cost of promotion. But if you only can sell like a maximum of 4,000 tickets, you can't even make it sustainable. So we realized the only way we could sustain this is if we had more screenings, we could have certain films run at smaller halls because we know that audience might be more niche and then the bigger films that could run in bigger halls. We went to look for a cinema that allowed us that flexibility and then we found it in Shaw Lido. Of all the cinemas we talked to, the price I think was the most reasonable for the quality of the cinema. I always felt like Shaw was a special venue for me because when I was young, I used to go to Shaw a lot. We decided to, to move the film festival to Lido for 2014. And that was the year that Design Film Festival exploded. It was, I think it was 6,500 or 7,500 people. So 2013, we had eight screenings. 2014, we had 30 screenings and we sold out every single screening. We had to do on-call screenings. That was when things started to change because the format of delivery changed. It was not just a one-day, okay. two-days event, but it ran over two, three weeks. And then we got more and more press coverage. We did different kind of launch activities for the film festival. With every project that you build, whether it's a newsletter, whether it's a website, a blog, an event, a product, there's a certain economies of scale. And that really applied for us. If we mm -hmm. kept it small, independent, only serving this niche audience of only professional designers, then you're missing out on this entire huge demographic who wants it, but not necessarily in the format that it is. So about 11 years ago, the, the, the design events, arts events in Singapore were, were very intimidating. It's difficult to convince a banker or a housewife to go out and buy a huge design book but you ask them to spend 70 minutes watching a film on Dior is quite simple uh, so that's what really clicked for us in 2014 the audience also completely changed when you buy tickets there was a questionnaire about are you a designer are you a non-designer and then what industry are you from the results were fascinating because we saw a lot of people who were from law from banking we had tourists who flew in 10 to 15 percent of people who fly in from the region we had someone that's fly awesome. all the way from Oregon, we have people coming from Japan, Thailand, Indonesia. So that was really that moment where you realize that if you're small, you die. If you don't scale and make that risk, it's hard to grow. I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned is that the number of people that you serve directly impacts the, the value of the work. So the question from Marvin, who runs Purveyor without an O yeah. in the Philippines. Oh, I know. Do you know him? Yeah, I know Purveyor, yeah. Okay, cool. So I haven't told him about this, but he's been on my mind because he emailed me and said he has his studio, but he also yeah. has an online shop slash magazine. Yeah. And he's trying to work out how do you know when you're ready to scale? He wants it to be 
standalone. And initially, my thought was, well, you kind of look for signals and metrics and blah, blah, blah. But what you're also saying is it was a matter of survival, that scaling was actually your way of staying yeah. in the business rather than this scientific metric-driven decision. I can speak from the perspective of my industry, design, communication, visual arts. I'm familiar with Purveyor. I think the work they do is incredible. I've seen the magazine. I think the challenge sometimes is that there's a barrier for people like ourselves. We are trying to serve our own people. If I'm making art and the only people who are seeing it are my friends and the people I already know who are my existing audience, you feel like, you know, I can't really make a living from that. I can't reach a certain level of impact. It's because you're not allowing people to, to understand what you're trying to do. I'm not saying this specifically for purveyor, but yep. I, I, we do see this a lot. If we continue running the film festival, only screening films on graphic design, right? Nobody will care. Just mm. nobody will understand. We could only tip over when we realize that certain films have a wider reach than other films. So it's really about tweaking it so that you want that small indie niche content on your list, but you also want the heavy hitters the ones that will pull in a very big crowd. So I call this the boomerang strategy, right? You throw a boomerang out, capture a really wide audience, and then you bring all these people back for you to talk about all the indie things that you want to talk about. If I wanted to promote people who are really interesting creators but no one knows about, I can't do it to only 50 to 100 people. It only makes sense if I can build a really big audience and then I start promoting these small guys. And so that's why we tinker with the, the people that we feature in design film festival. We have the really big films like Dior, Yves Saint Laurent, all the big fashion architecture films. So we can capture this really big audience and then we talk about the smaller, weirder, interesting kind of niche topics that nobody might know about. So in the context of Purveyor, I think it's really about how do you make more people care? If you can make more people care about what you're trying to promote, I think it's not about selling out, it's not about diluting your work, but it's about how much more people you can impact with the work that you do. I think their mission is really incredible. So how do you take it out of your own group? Like even yeah. for us, sometimes when we design things, I fall into that trap whereby I feel like I'm designing for my friends. I'm designing for our peers. How do you build things for people who don't care but who could benefit from it? Scaling is not so much about growing your audience, making more money. It's not just about that, but it's also about helping to change more people's lives and help more people discover certain things. You mentioned books read by. Yeah. What I yeah. really like about it is it's a slow-moving project and you actually <laughs> describe it as such. Why purposely slow-moving? Is that for your own sanity? So books read by was a project on our back burner for many years. Since I was a kid, I used to read a lot. So when COVID struck last year, I couldn't travel. A lot of our projects was put on hold. I started reading and I was averaging like one book every two days. I would read like six, seven hours a day. I was getting a bit frustrated because it's not that simple to find books to read. Because there's 400 billion books in the world. And the more you search, the more there is to read. At the same time, so between 2010 to maybe 2017, 2018, the first eight years of Anonymous, we, we ran a lot of side projects. We, we started Design Film Festival, we started Bracket, we started Food Cinema, we did a bunch of exhibitions, t-shirt collaborations, but 
about 2016-2017, I started feeling a bit uncomfortable because I felt like there was just too much stuff. There's just a ton of things that were constantly thrown in our face. So much design, so much music, so much art, so much blogs. There's just so much to, to look at. And so, that's it. We are not going to do any flashy branding and graphics for Design Film Festival this year because I feel a bit overdosed on it. If you look at our social media between 2010 and 2016-17, right, we were very active. We were posting every two, three days. I, I don't know, I was spending maybe two hours, three hours a day on social media. It becomes like a drop. You're constantly trying to feed this machine and then you're contributing to the noise. Agree, I'm the same. It's like Doritos. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And as a creator, you kind of feel like, hey, I haven't posted for two weeks. People are going to forget about me. Nobody cares about my thing. My site traffic is too low. I need to do something to boost it again. I need people to remember me. And so I felt like, you know, if we're going to launch something new, we're going to do it a lot slower. I don't want to feature one person a day. We could potentially grow it a lot bigger and faster if we feature a lot more people regularly. But it was a deliberate decision because books are a bit different, right? Most people, I think they take about two weeks to a month to finish one book. So imagine if, oh, I think this book, this person recommended on Bookshare is interesting. And then you buy, you read it. And then if every day I'm telling you, hey, there's another three books that are great. You just become so overwhelmed, like, oh, I can't catch up. Uh, so we changed it. We decided, you know, we're going to do this. We're going to do uh, three profiles every two weeks. So I think that the first six months, that's what we were doing. Every two weeks, we'll publish three interviews. Enough diversity, but slow enough a pace, precisely because books take time to read. And then in January, we changed it to one person a week, just to pick up the tempo a little bit. So we can include more and more people, right? We, we want to help people find books to read, but at the same time, we don't want to overwhelm them with too much. What? was your tactic for pitching the big names like Kevin Kelly? What did you actually say? Tactic. Unless you already know him. If you look at books read by the last question, whose reading list are you most curious about? We deliberately built in that question as a network effect. If I asked you reading list you're curious about, you will mention someone, okay, that's the next person we're going to feature. So the power moves away from us selecting people to this person selects another person, another person selects another person. So we try to build in that network effect into that question. Kevin Kelly was actually nominated by Peter Schwartz. He's a futurist, the vice president of uh, Salesforce. So we were recommended as Peter Schwartz by a client. Our client used to be the CEO of Harvest Media. Okay. And he knows Peter Schwartz. Hey, Peter Schwartz sounds interesting. What were the futurists we And his answer was Stuart Brand, Kevin Kelly, and Brian Eno. Mm. Brian Eno is infamously difficult to contact. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's impossible. We're trying a different route now, but uh, yeah. So that's how we got Kevin Kelly, because Peter Schwartz nominated him. I have one more question around your creative projects. I am a massive fan of food cinema. I think I might right, have right, mentioned before that I bought a ticket to every single yeah. show. Oh, at nice. Lido, actually, I remember. And at Objectives. And I love the way you guys did the branding. All these uh, objects in, in circles. I have the pins, I have the tote bag, everything. Oh, thank you. 
Yeah, but then it only ran for one year, right? <laughs> Why only one year? Why? So every year I watch about 150 to 200 films to select 8 to 12 for Design Film Festival. So at about 2015, a lot of the films that were submitted were not about design. Some of the films that came in were about food. I don't scrub the films, I watch them. And as I watch more and more of these food films, I realized that, you know, the creative process of a chef is very similar to the creative process of a designer or artist. It's about taking different ingredients, having this vision and trying to create something that will help people enjoy, trying to tell a story. <laughs> if you have a crappy logo to look at, you're not going to die. But if you have crappy food, then you kind of be sad. Every time I have the bibinka, right, it takes me back to vanilla. I feel like, oh my God, all these really positive feelings about it. Food has that power to transport. So food cinema really was about how can we talk about design to an even broader audience of people who don't care about design, who don't care about fashion. They just care about food, they care about sushi. They will spend money on that. Between design film festival and food cinema, food cinema is a lot easier to grow the programming. For design film festival, for years we've been deliberating, should we build a conference? Should we add talks? Should we add exhibition? And then I kind of realized that, you know, I don't think a lot of people will be that interested. Precisely because we're trying to help non-designers understand design. If we do a conference and use it to talk about design, the only people will come about designs. So food cinema is a lot easier. We had a talk show, we could do merchandise. The reason why we didn't continue food cinema, I've not said this publicly before. It sounds really successful, you know, so far. <laughs> <laughs> it was super successful. I think we sold 110% of tickets, meaning we oversold. It was really popular. The challenge of food cinema was, one, I did not expect the food industry to be so political. Like if we partnered a certain restaurant or food group to, to do satellite screenings, right, where you, you screen films in a restaurant, in a cafe, we realized that once we partner these guys, all the other food groups don't want to have anything to do with the event. Because to them, it's about competition. Right? Why are they helping right. another restaurant or another cafe? The second reason was that right after food cinema, we realized that more and more cinemas were trying to compete on the license. Golden Village or, or Cathay, they were also trying to bid for certain films that we were trying to bid okay. for. We were supposed to do food cinema again the following year. And we were trying to bid for this film called Tsukiji Wonderland. It just had a world premiere at the time. But to bid for this film was so difficult because you're playing onto a level whereby we're talking about Asian food channel, you're competing with all these big guys who have so much money. And the timing was in a way the worst because Tsukiji was closing, so everyone wanted the film. Everyone wanted the film. The funny thing is the film was bought by one of the local distributors, but they never screened the film. So for four years, the film was just sitting. So it was only recently shown in Singapore where that film is like four years ago, right? Because a lot of these distributors, they buy the film, they squat on it. They're waiting for someone else to buy it out them uh, to make a huge markup. That's annoying. At the same time, Netflix started growing bigger and bigger and they started creating their own programs. And the content is really amazing. You know, there's no way we can compete with Netflix. But it's quite interesting because about... Four months ago, five months ago, we were contacted by a cinema in Thailand to bring Design Film Festival to Thailand again. And I said, <laughs> you know, I don't think anybody cares about design during a pandemic. <laughs> I don't think anybody wants to go and watch a film about architecture right now because we are in this emotional state 
and uh, strange time right, whereby mm. it's just so much fear, so much un- uncertainty. And I think if you want people to go back to the cinemas, you need something that is kind of happy. Instead of Design Film Festival, I think it's more interesting if we brought food cinema. So there is a plan to bring food cinema back in some form to Thailand. At the same time, we're going to try and do it in Vietnam as well. So that is the tentative plan. That's awesome. This year, that's great yeah. news. <laughs> Whether the rest of us can fly in or not, that's great news. <laughs> One of the things yeah. I really appreciate about your yeah. writing is you're very open and articulate about the business side. For instance, yeah. of the projects you do through Anonymous, like the film fest and right. the books, you've said that they are now almost 50% of your studio revenue, which is quite unique because most studios are still very service-oriented. The best thing I've seen of the distillation of your thought is this special Kucha talk you, you did in Thailand Design Week. One of your 10 pieces of advice around surviving and making things yeah. with little or nothing yeah. is don't feed the birds, which <laughs> I thought was the funniest way of giving advice. Can you yeah. explain that a bit? They create this culture whereby the birds realize there's free food, I'm going to come every day. I, I do realize that when I say this, it does sound like, oh yeah, it's easy for us to say because we've been around for a long time. My only response to, to it is that I still make the mistake sometimes, which is whenever you try to build a product, it can be very tempting to give away something at a discount or give it away for free. And we see this a lot in events in Singapore. Mm-hmm. Very common. You know, a couple of years ago, the Japanese designer who came to Singapore, they were to give a talk and so they were selling the tickets for like $20. Two days before the event, the organizers started calling all the design companies, all the design schools and started offering free tickets. I understand why you are doing it but the minute we start doing that, everyone else who runs a, a conference, a talk, cannot charge for it anymore because you have devalued this content already. It, you have made it impossible for anyone else to chop. You've made it really, really difficult. It, it feels okay in the start where you, you feel like you're just trying to fill up the theater, but it actually hurts you more in the long run. I, I, I do know that because we've had shows whereby it's just 10 people in the hall. If I want to protect my own ego and my pride, then yeah, I'm going to give away free tickets. But these people that I give tickets to, they will never feel like they should pay for it. If the client feels like I can get you to do this job for $25,000 instead of $50,000, that to me is an anchor. You have anchored your value of Mm. your service at that price. And in future, anything above this discounted rate is too expensive. Because I could get it for $25,000. So why would I want to pay 50000 You really have to have yeah. this long-term view, which is what you guys have, where you're building an audience patiently over years. <laughs> and then there's a tipping point where they trust you and then you can yeah. sell things. Yeah. So, so on the yeah. opposite side of the no discounting, there's also showing the value you deliver, right? As a creative director, as a designer. And it was very interesting to me looking through the projects you did for Uniqlo because you were a little surprised that they came to you and you even said that we're not the agency of record. Why would they come to us? Why do you think you landed that project? We work with a client in Portland, Oregon. His name is Chris Riley. He's a a business and a marketing strategist. So we've worked with Chris for about eight 
nine years now. Typically, we work on a lot of B2B research and insights projects with him. Mm. And at the same time, there's this guy called John Jay. John used to be the global creative director for Wyden and Kennedy. He was largely influential in building a Nike brand in the last 25 years. About five years ago, John joined Uniqlo as their global creative director. I know John because many years ago, we interviewed him for our magazine bracket. At the same time, when I went to Portland for Design Film Festival, I, I met John as well. In 2015, I was on a flight back from New York. I landed in Tokyo, then I got an email from John. And so I had a call with him and then he asked a bunch of questions like, oh, how is shopping in Singapore? Where's cool? What's interesting? What do people wear? I, don't, I, th- I thought he was just, maybe he's curious about Singapore. And then uh, a couple of days later, his assistant emailed again to ask me a bunch of questions like, oh, who do I think is really good creators in Asia? So I said, oh, this guy is really asking a lot of questions. So I just answered everything. <laughs> and then when I got back to Singapore a week later, John asked for a second call. When I talked to John, we really talked about things like typography or advertising. We talk about very broad strokes about things that are interesting. Like mm. How do people think? What's unique about Singapore versus Thailand or, or Malaysia? And that's a topic that I was always very interested about. I didn't really think too much about it until a few months later when Chris, the, the guy from Portland, Chris also works with Uniqlo as their global strategist. So Chris asked for a call and typically our calls are very short. He speaks with incredible gravity. I mean, he's incredibly uh, clear about what he say. So our calls are very, very fast, like 10, 15 minutes, let's go. But this call took a while. And at the start of the call, it's kind of like, Uniqlo is going to open a global flagship store, the first in Southeast Asia, in Singapore. And he asked if I wanted to work on it. You know, all of us have this imposter syndrome. When someone's asking us to do something that we've never done before, you kind of feel like, "Mm, I want to do it because, you know, you're going to be able to stretch and do something more difficult. It's something a bit more prestigious. But you always have this doubt in yourself whether or not you're the right person. So I asked him, isn't the then agency on record going to be working on this? So Chris explained to me, what John felt after our call. They wanted me on board to be the creative director slash producer for the project. So at that point, I was like, okay, maybe we can start doing research. Chris flew to Singapore. We did a market research for Uniqlo. Uh, we turned it into a book. And then during the presentation to Japan, we presented the research about Singapore, what we think is happening, how people think, what's going to happen. How long did that research take? About two months, two and a half. Okay. That was one of the first research that I was involved with for Unico. The work you did in Manila for that, it was such fun looking at the photos, oh, looking yeah. at the observations. You discovered the word <laughs> yeah. Bayan and Bayan. You're like, wow, not yeah. everyone gets that. My time in Manila was really good because during the research, and even until today, right, every time you open the news, every time you read about the Philippines, it's something not positive. Mm. But when I was there, Everything is awesome. I mean, the food is amazing, the people is amazing, the culture, the language, the kind of community spirit that I've never seen anywhere in the world. And I think that project shifted my attitude towards the idea of what's your life's work. Mm. It kind of changed my attitude about the work as well. In what way? In what way did it change your attitude? I think I used to identify myself as a designer who makes things. This is what I design. My work is about this, uh, putting this 
kind of vision together and selling this vision and sharing this vision is quite egoistic sometimes. <laughs> it's very much about oh me, my work, the legacy I want to build, my, my portfolio. The life of a designer kind of sometimes feel very egoistic. I think working on the Singapore flagship, working on the Manila flagship, and we are working on something new right now in Thailand, which is going to be a similar scope of work. I think what my role is now is really about helping other people do their best work. It's not about my name being there. It's not about this is my vision. So therefore, I'm going to hire people to build my vision. But really, it's mm. about how do we find incredible talent and then put them in the spotlight instead. Uh, guide them to do their best work instead of just about my work. That's a really good segue into my other question, which was, on one hand, you've decided to yeah. stay small, but you are able to collaborate because you've built a network. So mm. have you ever considered growing beyond the size you are? Can you talk about both? The virtues I, of staying small and the virtues of having this collaborative network. Right. I think this is the first time I'm going to be talking about it publicly. So after 2010, after we started Anonymous, we did scale. The biggest the team went is about five, six people. And then I realized there was a few things that was happening. One, the most talented people in the world don't want to work for a company. They want to work for themselves. It's not just about working from home. It's about working from anywhere. They want to be able to work from Bali. They want to work three days a week. So that flexibility, that ability of choosing your own project, the place you're working, how much you work. In 2015, I started feeling this way. I could notice there was a shift. So it's this rise of this independent entrepreneurs who don't want to work for a company anymore. They want to have that massive amount of freedom to not just have a day job being a designer, but they want to build their own things, right? They want to build their own brand. They want to build their own studio. They want to become a blogger, influencer, whatever. But what that means is it's really difficult to build a team mm. for the owner of a business. Then the second thing is, I also realized that there was a lot of limitation to what you can do as a external agency. In the past, right, when you told someone you're an in-house creative or you're an in-house marketer, people always feel like, oh, you, why are you doing that? People who can't make it in the outside world, they'll go in-house. Now is the complete reverse. The biggest brands in the world, Nike, Adidas, Ikea, Squarespace, all have an internal creative team. Apple's creative team in Southeast Asia is really big. It's massive. Yeah, exactly. Brands are insourcing, meaning much less work is being farmed out to agencies. And when they do outsource the work, when they do call for an RFP, the work is getting less and less meaningful. Because of the work that we were doing on, on research and, and marketing for Unico, I realized that the person who solves the brief is the person who writes the brief. The agency is not the one who solves the brief. Before we start off on the creative, after we finish the research, we will develop the brief for the entire project. And then with that brief, pull together the team, and I realized that defining what we are going to do is actually the solution. When I hand off the brief to a motion graphics designer, to an artist, to a design studio, right? What is happening is they are giving me an interpretation of the solution. 
Okay. So for example, I want a 60 second TBC, and then I, I, I commission a director or production house. They're going to come back with a 60 seconds TBC. If the customer doesn't really care right, about the message in the TBC, it doesn't matter. Everything yeah. else doesn't matter. But this is very difficult to explain to clients. So now it makes a lot of sense to see brands insourcing because only when you are that deep into the organization are you able to formulate. Briefs that are going to be very effective to the business. So this is something that we went through a lot of pain to realize. No matter how good the work is, if we are solving the wrong brief, we will keep having to make the changes.、Mm. We are not making the changes because the work is bad. We're making the changes because we don't know what's the real brief. The brief says this, but internally there's all these different alignment issues. If I was a business owner, my money would be to build a creative team in house. I would not. Outsourced to an agency anymore. So this is another reason why we realize, okay, we're not going to expand simply. We're going to go back to a really small team, and the model we're using now, since about 2016, is kind of like a Lego model. Okay. Depending on the project, we can use different Lego pieces to form a different shape. Instead of saying that oh we are a design company with web developers, copywriters, designers, art directors, we can morph. We look at the brief. We re- realize that okay, it requires an advertising approach. Then we build ourselves to be like an advertising agency.、Mm. We bring on different groups and teams to do that kind of work. If we need to do an event like design film festival, then we will build a team based on that. So it's really about using Lego pieces that allows us to be a bit more nimble. Right,、so、we can partner with different agencies. For example, Manila. There's no way I can hire Dan. Yeah, it's impossible for me to hire Dan to be someone in my company. But it's easy when we are collaborating on projects. So if we have a project and I think Dan will be interested, then everyone gets featured, right? It's not just oh, anonymous did this work. No, no, it's not. It's Plus Sixty Three or these different people in, in the Philippines or Thailand or Vietnam. So that's our first solution. If we can't hire these people, we want to work with the best people in the world. We need to work in a way that is a more collective approach. If we had a five, ten men, twenty man team, there's no way in hell we can survive. I mean, when a pandemic hit, if we have a payroll of ten, twenty people, you probably went through a lot of pain. Yeah. But we were quite okay because it's just two persons. I think the third reason is also why we are keeping small is, I think my idea of work has changed a lot. In the past, it was really about how can we get more clients, how can we scale our film festival to be bigger? How do we do more of it overseas, and and then how do we make a living? Right, the bootstrapping is very very difficult. So now my model has changed again. The work that we do for clients, all that revenue goes into investment. Okay. I used to be have a very poor relationship with money, where I I didn't know how money worked, what's the real value of money, right? So I spent a lot of time reading a lot of books about money, and I realized that money has this hidden value that no one sees and no one talks about. Actually, I I'm not sure why they didn't teach in school about money. Yes. I realized that money is quite a important asset to to automate. So, for example,、hmm, how do I say this? A lot of the time we spend doing things for money are not necessarily the things that we really want to do, right? I'm sure if I ask you, you'd rather be traveling and living and seeing the world.、Mm. But we can't because we have a job, we have, we have obligations, we have money、uh, that we need to make. If I wanted to continue building things like design film festival or books read by, where you can't have immediate income from it, it requires you to have 
a very long runway of, of funds to sustain yourself before mm. you monetize it. But if we fund our own side projects with client work only, then it's also really difficult. We've done that. You know, we work six months on a client project, then we take all the money and throw it in our own projects. <laughs> and then you're going to burn the money there. Mm. That's not sustainable also. The sustainable way for you to do it is for you to be financially independent. Let's say it cost me about 120000 dollars a year to run a studio how do i turn whatever revenue i get from clients into an investment that can cover my burn rate every year okay that's what we're doing now we're trying to create a way whereby all the revenue we've made from clients in the past goes into an investment that every year we can draw one hundred twenty thousand, one hundred fifty thousand dollars out to cover our runway so that we don't have to work for clients so you've literally figured out or figuring out which financial investments to put your yeah. earnings in. It's like a retirement fund. Exactly. Oh, cool. Okay. The only reason why we're doing this is because in the long run, I, I don't think we will be in the service business for much mm. longer. Mm. So we are trying to shift out of it. Right? We want to be able to build things like books right by, yeah. whereby we're not just a designer who works with clients or build brands, but we're trying to build these things that can benefit a much, much wider amount of people. Uh, but you have to be realistic. You need you need money. You need you have mortgage, you have obligations, you have bills. We went through a very very long time to realize that okay, there is a game to play, and the game is when you work on projects, invest that money into something that generates income for you, so that it buys you time to work on the things that you care about. Most people do this when they are retired. Yes, yeah. yes. I'm actually resisting very much asking what you're investing in because I think that might be a bad idea for people to just copy your strategy but oh. whatever you're willing to share however specific you want to get about how you're doing that that's what we've been doing for about one or two years it's about really about keeping your cost low right? but I've always warned people don't follow my process because my process is unique to myself right? my temperament what I'm trying to do so what I'm trying to do is really to shift from a service model into a model whereby there are a lot of interesting ideas around the world how do we get ourselves in a position to become about helping to invest in these ideas. Dan and I, we've been talking about starting a publishing imprint in Philippines, whereby we publish like local artists, local illustrators, graphic novels. That's something that I'm starting to get more and more interested about. It's not about funding our own ideas, building our own portfolio. It's about helping others build their brand, build their, their dreams, their ideas. There's, there's so much great ideas that are either lacking funding, they lack the network, they lack the knowledge of how to market. And is this why yeah. your upcoming project, Brand Relief, is that your first mm. step or experiment in that area? Brand Relief it has been on the back burner for about 10 years. And then when COVID happened, I realized that maybe it was time to do it, create this idea of how we can provide funding and also advise companies who are doing good things for the environment, for culture and society. How do we help these guys? It's like an investment company, but it's not for profit. We would pledge X amount of dollars every year to 10 companies or brands or individuals around the world who is trying to build something that can benefit the environment or society. That fund every year is funded by us. And then we would bring on people from around the world to form this advisory board to consult all these brands. For example, if there's someone in Palawan who has come up with a really interesting way to build furniture using recycled materials, that's what we want to fund. And that's what we want to help them. It's not just about, oh, help 
designing more 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 crap beautiful things <laughs> yeah exactly it's like a grant slash incubation fund correct the idea is really about shifting this way of thinking about how we allocate resources right so we're delaying it until the time comes along whereby we're very confident that we're able to do it in a way that is sustainable that people understand that it's not about giving away free money it's trying to level the playing ground Okay, we're already at the one hour 40-something <laughs> mark. So thank you so oh, wow. much for... Yeah, it's been so enlightening for me. We ask yeah. all of our interviewees this. Mm. I ask them if they consider passion more important than talent or vice versa. Yeah. And you've actually said before <laughs> that following your passion is dangerous advice. Yeah. Why is yeah. that? Oh, because if there's no market for your passion, then it's not going to work. You, you, can, you can be very... <laughs> passionate about something but if no one needs it or wants it then mm. it's, it's going to be very painful I, i'm not saying don't follow your passion for example if you're really interested in music and you want to be a professional musician you want that to be a career then it requires you to understand it. is there a market for it what do people want what do people need doing that kind of market research before you you, you go into it right so mm. i don't think it's just about passion i think it's about intent as well uh, you need to know what are you trying to get out of it if you don't worry about money you don't care about whether people read it or see it yeah sure you can do it it's really that simple yeah. it's very practical I think you've probably <laughs> given the most practical answer of everyone so far <laughs> <laughs> so this is really one of our passion topics trying to figure out this the entire demand and supply of our economy mm. there's a ton of people doing really interesting work but at the same time the demand is fixed, right? Everyone is only so much time and money. Yeah. So how do you navigate yourself? How do you move around this challenging time where it's not really about how good you are anymore? We are trying to figure it out as well. Yeah. When you figure it out, please write about it because the rest <laughs> of us will find it very useful. It's very true. Being good is like a baseline. It's just entry. Exactly. This is a random question. The word tsundoku, the Japanese word that means buying too many books and not enough time to read. Yeah. What are your yeah. feelings towards that word? Well, I, I definitely have that problem. There's this saying that every man has two selves, the person that you are and the person you want to be. So I think when you buy a book, you're buying this thing to make you feel like after reading this, I can become this person that I want to be. So if I want to feel like a smarter person, then I buy books that makes me feel smarter. <laughs> so it's always about us trying to reach this ideal, right? And that's why advertising works. Because advertising exploits that. the fact that all humans have these two selves. So books are really a form of that, right? It's about us trying to surround ourselves with these books that remind us of who we aspire to be, who we are trying to become this better version of ourselves. I don't think it's a bad thing Honestly, hoarding things is bad, but I don't think buying books is a bad habit. Good, because I'm a tsundokuer as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of people are, yeah. The first time I heard about this, everybody has two selves. It just made sense on so many levels. Thanks for listening to Foolish Careers. If you enjoyed this episode, there's more where that came from. Just subscribe to the Foolish Careers newsletter. You'll get a new story a week featuring a storyteller, artist, or creative entrepreneur in Asia who ignored the advice to get a more sensible career. So subscribe today at foolishcareers.asia.
We look forward to hearing from you.